Welcome to Gravedigger Radio Podcast, broadcasting live from the afterlife. Welcome to Gravedigger Radio. Alright guys, before we dive into today's story, we've got a little update on our Randonautica episode, specifically concerning the suitcase full of body parts found in Seattle. A 62-year-old man has been charged in the killing of a young Washington couple. Michael Lee Dudley, who was the couple's landlord, was charged with two counts of second-degree murder. The families of 36-year-old Jessica Lewis and her boyfriend of eight years, Austin Winter, 27, confirmed the couple had been renting a room in Dudley's home. Prosecutors believe Dudley was angry with Winter over unpaid rent and for bringing potential criminal activity to the Obam home. Well, that's a little ironic, don't you think? Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so he's, he's mad about him. Don't you ever bring those murderers in here? Family members told police that the couple had recently been attacked and beaten by a group of men who showed up at Dudley's home carrying guns. An incredible statement from a witness claims she moved in Dudley's home on June 9th, the very day the medical examiner believes the couple were murdered. She said as Dudley helped her move her belongings in, she noticed his glasses were broken and his face scratched. She told police that after taking a shower, she opened the door to her new bedroom and saw heaps of clothing in the middle of the floor and a hand sticking out from underneath. A bloody hand. I'll say. Protruding. Um, yeah, <laughs> just sticking right out there, just hanging out there. Hey, what are you going to do? Is a good rate on the rent. I'll say. I mean, rent's high, I'm sure, in Seattle and everything, too. So you get what you can. She said Dudley told her later that night that he needed to clean up the mess and ask if he could take her somewhere. As they were leaving, she saw him laying out large sheets of plastic in the basement. When she asked him about it, he told her, let's put it this way. His gun misfired and mine didn't. Wow. That's that's fucked up. <laughs> and um, this this woman, um, did she like get the hell out of there, or was she was like, oh, still a good deal, or the way this kind of first reads, month free rent? Yeah. And looking at this news story, it sounds kind of like she was like, well, this seems like a pretty good deal. She wasn't too keen to narc on the guy. I think once you know things kind of boiled over, then she was willing to talk about what was going on. But early on, it didn't sound like she was too keen to. To really rock the boat with this, but I mean, I guess too you think about it, if you know this guy has killed somebody before. Well, yeah, in that moment, be cool. Yeah, do you, <laughs> do you really want to mess with this guy who is a confirmed murderer? Like, if you see a you see a body in a room with clothing covering over top of it and a hand sticking out, that's pretty clear indication. Yikes. Detectives finally obtained a search warrant. In the room where the couple had been staying, they found bullet holes, spent casings, and blood. While they were searching the home, neighbors told them they had called 911 on June 9th after hearing gunfire and yelling. Officers had responded that night, but left the residence a short time later when no one answered the door. When questioned about his tenant's murder, Dudley denied any involvement, but could not explain the bullets or the bullet holes. So the cops showed up, nobody answered, and it's like, oh well, job done. Yeah, there was nobody there, and they're like, well... You know, we can't confirm that anything actually happened. Well, I don't I don't know much about police work, but okay. You know, last time we talked about it being an unsolved case, so now it sounds like we have our answer of how those body parts got in the suitcases and the man responsible for it. It sounds like he rolled out the, that plastic and chopped them up right there. Gosh, and then stuffed them in the suitcases and took them out to the, to the beach. And just threw them in the ocean. I think the original video has since been taken down. Um, it was TikTok. I think that's been taken down. So if you had a chance to see it, good for you. If you didn't, search the internet. I'm sure it's still floating. I mean, nothing ever goes away, right? It's actually on YouTube. Oh, okay. So I went. I watched it last night when I was... So somebody took it from TikTok, put it on YouTube. So, yep. yeah. And it's... 
I don't know. It, you know, last time I talked about, oh, if this wasn't so documented, I would think it was fake. And that it was just a suitcase that was planted there. Yeah. Watching it again, I still kind of feel the same way because it seems like it's almost a little cheesy. Like it's a little put on. But, yeah. But I mean, clearly it's not. So it's just weird how these things kind of work out. I'm always amazed that you hear stories about this. People that commit these horrible acts and it's just like, tra-la-la, shot these people dead, threw some clothes on them, cleaned it, chopped them up, put them in suitcases, took them out to the beach, la. and then I picked up some milk and cookies and bread on the way home and... Well, that's that's just your average Tuesday, huh? <laughs> I'm really amazed kind of the laissez-faire way that right. I went about it to where it's like, okay, my master way to hide the bodies from my new tenant who's moving in today. Right. Is just, a clo- is just throw some clothes over them and, oh, there's a hand sticking out. But I am kind of shocked, though, you know, you were talking about, well, it was a good raid. It was a good deal on the room. If he was able to murder them that day and then move someone <laughs> in new at the same time, I mean, I'd say you're probably not wrong. Like, he couldn't tell her, hey, I've got some stuff going on today. Could you could you stop by tomorrow instead? Right. Like, today doesn't work out. I'm a little preoccupied. Right. I, <laughs> I got to give a friend a hand. I do that all the time to people, and that's just I can't be bothered. And it's not that I have, like, dead bodies lying about the house. You just don't want to deal with anyone. Right. All right. Well, now on today's actual story. And, guys, <laughs> this one's a doozy. I, it's probably one of, it's up there in terms of my favorite, just creepy, unexplained, horror stories you got me on this one zach i had not heard of this um incident before um i had to you know do some research on my own because i had no idea you threw a name out there and i'm like what and uh something i totally had never heard of before even though i'm in all this weird creepy stuff well today we're talking about the diet love pass incident so jason you said you'd never heard about this at all before huh? no so in 1959 a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern urals mountains in Sverdlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. In Mother Russia, you right. do not hike the Ural Mountains. The Ural Mountains hike you. <laughs> I guess our hapless protagonist of this story, Igor Dyatlov, who the incident is named for, was a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, who was the leader who assembled a group of nine for the trip most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers, which is about 190 miles. The route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the far northern regions of Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. This was a division of the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical, Culture, and Sport, and they confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8, 1959. Right, so 10 set out, right, but one guy got sick and turned back? Well, we'll get to that in just a second, because he actually plays a pretty important part in the story. The goal of the expedition was to reach Gora Orton, a mountain of 10 kilometers, 6.2 miles, north of the site where the incident occurred. The route undertaken in February was estimated as a Category 3, the most difficult time to traverse. On January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued their route book, which listed their course following the Number 5 trail. At that time, the Zverdlovsk City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. The 11th person was listed as Zyman Mm, I'm going to butcher this. Zolotov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of similar difficulty. The Dyatlov group left the city of Verdlosk on the same day that they received their route. On January 27th, 
They began their trek towards Gora Orton. On January 28th, one member, Yuri Yudin, the guy you mentioned earlier. My boy Yuri. Right? I'll say that's kind of the... Talk about lucking out with this group, though. He's like the guy that didn't get on the airplane and went down. Exactly. <laughs> well, he suffered from several health elements, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. Well, how's he going on this like extreme nature hike anyway? Man, I Ass was one of the snow. same thing. Uh, he turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. Which is weird, because you think about it, he's already a grade two hiker. Hmm. So he's already done a lot of this anyway, going forward, but... You know, just fate would have it that he kind of lucked out on this. So before leaving, Jotlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of February, but Jotlov told Yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th had passed and no message had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays for a few days were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, when they didn't really find anything, the army and militia forces, I think it's supposed to be more like militia. Militia, yeah. yeah forces became involved, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. On February 26th, the searchers found the group abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kyolot Sakaio. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would need for the trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west towards the top Kolot cycle. Now that translates as something pretty juicy, doesn't it? Isn't that the one that's Death Mountain? Dead Mountain. Yeah, Dead Mountain, not Death Mountain. Yeah, Dead Mountain. Well, when they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than move the .93 miles downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. Yudin speculated, Jotlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavan, the student who found the tent, said that the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. And their shoes had been left behind. Yeah, they had left their shoes, most of their belongings, most of their clothes. It seems like they just kind of vanished out into the wilderness mm. when they first find this camp. Yeah, the one thing you'd think you'd want, ass deep in snow, minus 22 degrees, is your shoes. I don't even like walking on like grass barefoot. I couldn't imagine walking out in the snow barefoot. Fuck that. Well, nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed, leading down to the edge of nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass. 0.93 miles to the northeast, about 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest edge, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There, the first of the two bodies shoeless and dressed only in their underwear the branches on the tree were broken about five meters high suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something perhaps the camp between the pine and the camp the searchers found three more corpses who died in crawling poses suggested they, they were attempting to return to the tent so they left camp were in the process of coming back yeah when they succumbed to hypothermia the way that they found the bodies it looks like everyone had kind of went off to the woods uh-huh 
and then they were like, oh, this sucks. We're we're going to die out here. Uh-huh. And so they decided to try to make their way back and then froze to death in the snow. A legal inquest was started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Finding the four remainders of the party took more than two months. They were finally found on May the 4th under about 13 feet of snow in a ravine, 246 feet from the woods and the with the pine trees where the first bodies were found. You say 13, they were under 13 feet of snow? Yeah, found them under 13 feet of snow. Huh. Which to me, I, like, I couldn't really find this in the research. Something under 13 feet of snow, I don't even know what would cause you to really look there. It didn't say, when I was trying to research the story, why they were able to even find them under 13 feet of snow. Maybe they had some, like, dogs. Well, yeah, cadaver dogs would make sense. Yeah. At 13 feet, I mean, I assume that's, I mean, it could be well within the normal, like, snowfall rate, but could that also... Like hint at like an avalanche or something like that. Well, we'll get to that later on because okay. that's a that's a very good question actually. Well, I thank you. Although the temperature was very low, about negative thirteen to twenty two degrees, with a snowstorm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some had only one shoe, while others wore only socks. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. Three of the four were dressed better than the others and there were signs that those that died first had their clothes relinquished. There was one member of the party was wearing another's burned and torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. So it sounds like once they realized what kind of bind they were in, they were just trying to get warm by any means necessary and wrap themselves up. I'm wondering, hmm. when it says burned, I wonder if they got just so cold that they just eventually kind of, I don't want to say us getting into the fire, but I mean, you yeah. have to burn the fabric. I mean, I guess if you think you're going to freeze to death, you'll do anything to avoid doing that. Or maybe they tried to set, tried to start a fire with their clothes. And then tried to put them on or something. <laughs> it didn't work. They just <laughs> right. put them back on. I don't know. An examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. One had major skull fractures and the other two had major chest trauma. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Monsi people, reindeer herders local to the area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching from their lands. Several Monsi were interrogated, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and there showed no signs of a hand-to-hand struggle. Could they have just had a tumble? Well, <laughs> you're, it's, you, you, now I know how you feel because you're, you're getting <laughs> ahead of me with everything here. It's like you've seen these notes already. Okay, I'll shut up and let you recount. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> but we'll get to that as well, because that's kind of a prevailing theory later mm. on is... Uh, at least as far as the official report goes, that's kind of what people are thinking happened. Uh, but the official report is very questionable at best, so we'll get into that in a minute. Okay. According to the medical examiner, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, beyond what any human would be capable of, and comparable to that of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. Hmm. All four bodies at the bottom of the ravine were found in a running stream and had soft tissue damage to their head and face. One member was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, and facial tissue. Another one was missing their eyeballs, and a third was only missing his eyebrows, which is, to me, really weird. You want to immediately think of scavengers have got to these these folks. Yeah. But they didn't find any signs like an animal had been around, there was no tracks of anything, and it just seemed very odd and random. And when they say missing the eyebrows, I mean like they were gnawed off or just clean shaven. From what I was gathering, it was like, it's kind of like they were gone as if, you know, like uh, if you accidentally scorch off your eyebrows. Oh, I do that all the time. I'm trying to start the grill or <laughs> get the fire pit going. 
like I said, it wasn't like they had been eaten, but there really wasn't much like a surgical nature to these things either. Uh-huh. It's more just kind of like they were just gone. They were like they had been ripped out. Ew. But there wasn't like the like the gnaw marks and the teeth marks to indicate like an animal had got them. Right, that'd be obvious, I would think. Yeah, like I, I think if that was the case, it wouldn't even make it into like the conspiracy yeah. theory realm of things. They got gnawed by a squirrel or something. But here's where things get even weirder. 12-year-old Yuri Kuntzvich, who later became the head of the Dyatlov Foundation. 12-year-old? Yeah, he was 12 years old. Well, and later on, I guess as an adult, he became the head of the foundation. Okay. But he attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. And what's even weirder, though, is that the bodies were found to have a detectable level of radiation on them. Yeah, I did come across that in my research. It was just, what, what did you say, say three members? Yeah, I think three. Not all the bodies had it on them, but there was a handful of them that had detectable levels of radiation. But it said that five, well, he went to five of the funerals uh-huh. and said that they all had this deep brown tan look to them. Okay. Which to me sounds more like, you know, something like that would almost be like a flash burn. Because I don't, I don't think radiation, I don't know that radiation tans you like that. Yeah, or maybe like the just the... Uh... mortuary crew just really weren't very good with the cosmetic arts (laughs) right exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh god now i'm thinking of like them rolling bodies like a spray tan machine or something (laughs) so at the time the verdict was that the group members had died because of of a quote compelling natural force what's even creepier though is the inquest officially ceased in may 1959 only a few months after the initial incident now they wrapped that up nice and tight and quickly didn't they yes they did And where it gets weirder is that the files were then sent to a secret archive. However, another group of hikers that were 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Idvil and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses, including meteorology services and the military. One of them was a former police officer who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article that indicated his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated, after his team reported that they seen flying spheres, he then received a direct order from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the claim. <laughs> so as soon as he put that out there, they That's were quick very, to shut that shit down. Very Soviet Union. <laughs> it's like, you didn't see anything here. Now, you know, hitting on some of the questions you were asking me earlier, we've got some of the possible explanations for this event. American skeptic author Benjamin Radford, hey, finally a name I can pronounce in this entire thing. <laughs> Way to go. Suggests an avalanche as a plausible ex- explanation. He avalanche? Writes, yeah. He okay. writes, The group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent, or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Which, I don't understand. If Just get out of your tent. <laughs> <laughs> no need to, you know, if they thought it was imminent, just, just yeah. walk out. No need to cut out. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead. But at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow. More than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. That's such a vague phrase, compelling natural. It could be anything. Right. Well, you know, and reading through this and initially looking at it, 
Okay, I could I could see an avalanche totally being the cause. Do for they not this. have a word for avalanche in Russian? <laughs> God, I hope not. It's I would I wouldn't be able to pronounce look it, it up. It might did. be compelling natural force. Right, it translates. That's actually avalanche is Russian for compelling natural force. <laughs> which and all that seems like a logical explanation, right? Well, I, I, like the burning themselves. Okay, they're trying to start a fire. I don't know. They got some pine needles together. Whatever. It's like, are they so bad at building a fire that they're going to like burn their damn near burn their hands off just to make? Can we believe that they were trying to start a campfire and burn themselves that badly? These are experienced hikers and campers. And that's my thing: is that on one hand, if they were that cold and they didn't have good use of their hands, or didn't realize, you know, what's if frostbite already set in? Yeah, they might not even realize that they were burning their hands. Okay. And to a degree, frostbite can kind of look like burns in, okay. in, in a way. It's possible, but I'm with you. If they're these experienced hikers. They're probably going to know how to start a fire without setting themselves on fire. Yeah, I guess, it's, I guess, like you said, it's possible that they were just so cold they couldn't feel it, so they just, like, got too close to the fire, maybe, once they got it going. Or they were so cold that was the only way they could feel yeah. like they were getting warm, yeah. which is why the guy's pants were maybe been burnt. But the problem with the avalanche theory is that the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. Right, because they found a lot of the stuff easily enough, right? The tent, right. the campsite, and most of the bodies. Well, and two, those were uphill. Uh-huh. So you should have seen something sliding through there. Yeah. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. Hmm. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process. And there also would have been damage to the tree line. Keep in mind, the only right. damage to the tree line that was noted was when the guy tried to climb up there, assumably. Okay, yeah. Also, over 100 expeditions to the regions were held since the incident, and none of them reported conditions that might even create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The, quote, dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had a significantly steeper slope, were observed in April and May, when the snowfalls were melting. During February, when incidents occurred, there were no such conditions. Mm. See, when I did my uh, looking into this story, like I came across that same phrase, the compelling natural force, and I was thinking something more psychological, like maybe something happened to the group, maybe it was some kind of traumatic event, but then they kind of lost their shit and wandered off and couldn't sort it out, maybe got lost and couldn't get back. Compelling natural force was some kind of like, you know, like messed up version of wanderlust or something that drove maybe the cold i don't know that could just compel them to wander off and make bad decisions and because that can't happen in certain situations jason you never cease to impress me because that's exactly what we're getting ready to talk about here in a little bit another thing is though going back to the avalanche an analysis of the terrain and slopes that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way around its path would have gone past the tent and it had collapsed from the side but not in a horizontal direction Dietlov was an experienced skier and was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. They would have been able to camp anywhere and they would have noticed if there had been signs for an avalanche. Yeah. And also, they were able to find these footprints pretty easily. Uh-huh. So if there was an avalanche, it would have covered up. Yeah. But going on to your question there about the compelling natural force and it being some kind of weird psychological that messed with them, there's been another hypothesis proposed about infrasound. Infrasound? Infrasound. Okay. Donnie Eckler's 2013 book, Dead Mountain. The theory is that when going around, Colot Saikal created a Carmon Vortex Street, and this produced infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. 
According to Iker's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing panic, discomfort, and mental distress in the hikers. Iker claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness, unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by the three of the victims were the result of them tumbling over the edge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Yeah, I'm perfectly comfortable with uh, those three deaths. So they got lost in the dark woods, fell off some cliff or something, wham, 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 that accounts for them. And here's the one that I like the best out of all of them. Oh, you're going to say aliens or something. (laughs) Well, there's actually a lot of alien theory, but this this one's a little bit more plausible. One of the theories suggests military testing. Speculation exists that the campsite fell within the past of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. Parachute mines? Parachute mines, which just sounds terrifying. So essentially what a parachute mine is, is instead of like a a bomb dropping, Uh they would release these mines on parachutes that were meant to explode before they hit the ground. Oh, okay. The theory alleges that the hikers, woken by loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. After some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. Hmm. There are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. That would explain the, the hush job. Yes. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air rather than upon striking the ground, and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage and comparably less external trauma. The theory coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and allegedly photographed by them, potentially military aircraft or descending parachute mines. This theory uses scavenging animals to explain the injuries, okay, such as the missing eyes and the missing tongues, and some of the bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to characteristic liver mortis, which is just like that's uh, blood pooling. Okay. And just kind of the way the body starts to decompose a little bit there. Uh-huh. You glossed so, it over it there quickly, but you said that um, some of those orange orbs in the sky were thought to have been recorded by the hikers. Yes. And I saw in my research one of those photographs because they left their, their cameras behind and they were able to process the film. And, of course, it's a very bad, blurry, out-of-focus photo. But, yeah, there is like a big a big orb in it. And you can't tell, you know, there's no frame of reference, so it's hard to see any context for it. But they may have captured one of those mines as it was falling or about to explode. Or And that's that's kind of the theory that I like to go with. Yeah. The uh, photographs of the tent allegedly showed that it was erected incorrectly, something that experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. And then, you know, talking about the hush job. On July 11th, 2020, Deputy Head of the Euro's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General Office. That's a... That is one hell of a title. Announced that an avalanche was to be the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. But to me, the fact that they keep going back and reopening this case and rehashing it and yeah. shutting it down, I I don't buy the avalanche theory. Yeah, that 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 doesn't work for me at all. I, I because I like psychology, I kind of like they all went nuts or were driven mad by this wind or this infrasound stuff. I like that a lot. Um, but again, I also, I also like the mines. I mean, when you talk about the mines, you're talking about like large ordnance things. I think of a mine as like something you could hold in your hand almost that like might blow up and get one or two guys if they're close together. But if they're parachute mines, maybe they could be these big old things. Well, I mean, you think about a sea mine. Uh-huh. I mean, a sea mine's a pretty huge thing as far as when they were trying to get boats and whatnot. 
during, okay, during yeah. the wars. A sea mine's a large thing. And I'm, something like that exploded, like, just above the ground, like, within close proximity of a human being. Like, not only, I mean, would that the force of that explosion be enough to cause these damages? Oh, yeah. Um, so, whenever you have, like, blast trauma, you have primary, secondary, and tertiary damage. Okay. And your primary injury is actually that initial shockwave that hits you. Okay. And then the secondary is like being thrown into stuff, and the tertiary is a shrapnel okay. of things hitting you. Um, yeah, no, that that amount of pressure, especially if these bombs were going or mines were going off right over top of them, uh-huh. I absolutely think that it'd be enough to cause some significant damage internally. And a pressure injury is not going to show you external injuries like being hit with something. Okay, well, some of that lines up then. It a lot of that lines up as far as the guys missing eyes go. Like a couple of them have missing eyes. A significant concussive blast would absolutely be could enough. Could pop your eyes out? Could pop your eyes out. Huh, okay. Uh, the missing eyebrows, if there was, like, if that guy was under an area where a lot of heat was generated, yeah, I could see it burning that off. That's and what I was going to ask next, is if these things had, like, an incendiary kind of component to them. I would assume probably just as being as cold as it is, that mm-hmm. rapid pressure change could probably generate some heat as well with them. Okay. Just yeah. as far as thinking of the physics of things there. I didn't mention in my original research, but just looking over some other things, there's also burn marks noted to the tops of the trees in the area. Okay. Then, so yeah. it, it greatly lends credence to the parachute mine theory. A lot of people pull in UFOs for the uh, the burn marks on the top of the tree, but I'm I'm all in the in lights on, in the sky and all that. Yeah. yeah, but me personally, I'm all in on it being the military testing and just some people that were off course. Especially you think about it, the route book that they were given mm-hmm. was a very specific route they were supposed to follow, uh-huh. and they had deviated off that route. And so they were kind of just in the middle of the woods. And it's yeah not impossible they accidentally stumbled onto a military testing site. Or that the military mines you know, didn't hit their target and wandered off course. Or, or both. <laughs> if you watch the miniseries Chernobyl that was out about a year ago, it's really good. And it does such a good job of talking about, or just showing you really, how you know the Soviet Union, this, this huge bureaucracy. And there was a lot of, I guess, um, face-saving and, and prideful moves taken even after Chernobyl, even when they knew how bad it was, cover it up, cover it up, cover it up, send more people in, you know, just brush it all under the rug so that nobody gets blamed and we don't, you know, nobody knows like how bad we screwed up and how bad the extent of the damage was. And so maybe this is just like a tiny little nine person Chernobyl where it was just a botched job and they, they covered it up to save their asses and uh, these nine people paid for it. One, two, you think about anything Cold War related. Yeah. That if they showed up, that they that they screwed up, that they were capable of failing in any way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. it automatically discredits the state. Right. And Can't have that. Where physical activity and physical superiority were such a big deal for Cold War Russia, yeah. the fact that they went out and accidentally bombed some of their like their hikers, their their physically fit, good people, yeah, it's a bad look for them. And that's the other big tragedy that kind of struck me as I was looking through it. Like all these were like students and grad students and like really high level science programs, engineering, um, you know, hard sciences. Like these were not your run of the mill people. These were all advanced students in hard stuff, you know, far, far more intelligent than I am. Um, and it's such a tragedy that they lost these people, which, which have been such a, a benefit um, to their country going forward as they matured. Um, the last survivor, Yuri, you know, the guy that turned back when he was six didn't die until 2013 at the age of 75. Oh, I, I did not realize that. Yeah. Despite all his health problems. Well, and going back to them all being deeply, kind of have that deeply tanned look. Uh-huh. If there's there's two theories, and I, I kind of like them both, is one that they were 
early mummification had started to set in, just from being out in the cold. Okay, yeah. But then my personal thought on it is that they were uh, just like a flash burn to them. Okay. Just from that, that sudden explosion above them and going on all around them. Uh-huh. Because it, it sounds like it was just absolute pandemonium and chaos there. Yeah, and they he said that, that they tried to cut their way out of the tent, so they were getting out of Dodge one way or another. They were ready to go, because, I mean... You think I don't? I need to look look up some videos on this. But as far as a parachute mine bombing run, I mean, I'm imagining that they're unleashing tons of these parachute mines out through the area. So you're going to have explosions going off all around you. Yeah. So and, they were to- probably totally um, disoriented, uh, not only by the dark and the cold and the forest, but all these explosions and the sounds and the impact, and probably made a run for it and just probably were out of it. The rest yeah. of the time until they passed away from the, the cold temperatures or fell off a cliff or whatever happened to those three. And two, there's there's also a thing called paradoxical undressing. Once hypothermia sets in. <laughs> Get enough drinks in me. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is that as your body is freezing and your nerve endings are dying, uh-huh. your body feels like it's actually burning up. And so you'll see a lot of people that have died of hypothermia in their underwear or they're naked. Wow. And that's because... They think that they're too hot. They think they're overheating. Yeah. And it just worsens the hypothermia. Yeah, I felt that a time or two, you know, as a kid or whatever, playing in the snow too long and you come in and it's like your skin is prickling. Right. It's almost a pins, pins and needles kind of feeling. And I can't imagine how bad it would be in their situation. To be in negative 13 degree temperatures, yeah. negative 22 degree temperatures in your underwear naked. And especially, I'm assuming there's probably, you know, that was just the recorded temperature. That didn't mention the wind chill yeah. factor. So it could have felt like it was negative 50 out there. With the wind whipping around through these mountains. Yeah, so it sounds to me like a toxic stew of all these things. The military accidentally bombing these campers and the, the campers being forced away from their security and safety and warmth of their camp. And then they have to deal with the environments while they're shockwaved out of their brains. And, and just, God, what a, what a hot mess. Yeah. and you or know, cold talking, mess, I guess is the word. <laughs> well, talking about them, like stumbling down the ravine and, and that being yeah. the injuries. There really wasn't a lot of external trauma. So if they had fallen, you should have seen some kind of damage to them. Mm-hmm. But to me, this really speaks of like blast injuries. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Jason, what do you think of our uh, our trip to 1959 Soviet Russia, Dead Mountain? Uh, it makes me sad. I mean, um, you know, we do some hiking every now and then. we got a good friend who does like crazy Appalachian Trail type of stuff. And, you know, it's it's scary and it, it's, it's bizarre that these uh, incredibly intelligent individuals found themselves in this situation. And we're kind of the victims of their own government's experimentation, which was then covered up. And you, know, you mix in the whole military secrecy of it, too. So if they were experimenting with whatever the hell a parachute buying is, that's something they would want to keep quiet for military intelligence reasons. And oh, it's just a this huge <laughs> clusterfuck of terrible events that took these people's lives. And it, it turns it into such a weird mystery to try to wrap your mind around because it can go in all these different directions. It's hard to nail down like one solid answer for them. Yeah. And. That's just kind of my whole thing. Like, when I came across the story, I just find it deeply fascinating. I've always enjoyed the story. Yeah. Because it's it's just so weird. Because it's so well documented, and these are people that seem like they are well put together, well adjusted, everyday people. Yeah, there's top shelf people, yeah. And then, in the course of one night, everything just went to hell immediately. And just this massive shift. And it's well documented right up until that moment. Which is absolutely Yeah, because they they were, like, keeping diaries and stuff, and, like, you know, making notes when they reached certain checkpoints or whatever. I mean, and like I said, a lot of their cameras were found with, with film on it. And you can see them like hanging out, having a good time. You know, they've got their skis on. And they're like hugging each other and 
fooling around like any group of young young people would be heading out on this fun hiking camping adventure and then it all went sideways well that concludes the tale of the Dyatlov pass incident definitely look it up look at some of the pictures for this because it, it really does paint a very chilling tale and you know, as always we encourage people to draw their own conclusions if you like what we're doing here and you want to help us keep doing it head over to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash gravedigger radio until next time we get to tell you another spooky tale